0: Listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages, we bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Okay, so you've prepared us something special for our Christmas holiday episode.
1: I have. So, audience, when Zoe came up with the idea of having special holiday episodes.
0: Because I'm basic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No comment. We didn't know what to do for the Christmas one for the longest time, and eventually we settled on the second Shepherd's Play, doing a full dramatic reading slash radio drama version of this late medieval mystery play that was usually performed around this time of year.
0: I am so excited for this. I have not read this one, so this is going to be a dry reading for me.
1: (laughs) That's going to be fun.
0: Oh, dear. Can we do voices? Can I do horrible
1: voices? You are very much encouraged to do (laughs) horrible voices. I was honestly just assuming you would automatically.
0: Okay, I will be doing this automatically. I just had to ask it as the disclaimer to let everybody know I will be doing terrible accents and you are all going to have to deal with it. I mean no offense by any of these accents. They're just what I do in D&D. So, I'm excited.
1: Before we start, this is, as I said, a late medieval mystery play. Zoe, can you explain mystery play to the audience?
0: I actually am completely uneducated about medieval mystery plays. Oh, okay. This is this is a genre that I am unfamiliar with, so I, this is why I'm super excited to learn about it.
1: All right, I'm, I'm just trying to toss as much of the exposition to you as possible so it doesn't sound like I'm mansplaining. No,
0: I have no context for this, so mansplain away.
1: All right, so mystery play isn't mystery like Sherlock Holmes. It's mystery like mystery cult, like in ancient Greece.
0: This is already amazing.
1: That's not as fun as it sounds. Basically, it means that they're all plays with religious themes.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it's akin to the Living Nativity.
1: Yeah, it's, I guess, the ancestor of a Christmas pageant.
0: Okay, this makes sense.
1: They used to have a whole array of these mystery plays for all times of year.
0: Right, right. And would this go all the way back to Roman tradition? Like Roman and Greek tradition of, of putting I think on it plays? Might. That is what I would infer, given that they would have like bacchanalias and they would have all these festivals and putting on plays would be part of that. And we, I mean, we already talked about Mummer's plays at Samhain at Halloween. So it, you know, totally follows that you'd have the same sort of thing at Yuletide.
1: Yeah, and this this was a very popular, very long-standing and socially important tradition throughout medieval Britain, at least. I don't know so much about what it was like on the continent.
0: Here in Ireland, they have pantomimes, which... For an American, I was like, what do you mean a pantomime? Like, what is the context for this? But it's basically a little Christmas pageant. It's a little Christmas play that they put on. And that's the word that they use. So I would wager that this also, this tradition ties into the mystery plays.
1: I would assume you're right. But uh, there's a lot of variety in them. Sometimes they got really elaborate. For example, they would have what they called a hell mouth in some plays, which I'm sure is where Buffy got that term.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Where they'd have, like, a literal, like, something made out of wooden cloth that was just, like, a demon mouth that was the entrance to hell.
0: Which is exactly what it should be called.
1: And in some places, there were traditional rolls that were very important to the family that played them and would even get passed down in the family.
0: So you automatically got typecast by your family line. Yes. That's amazing. I'm not
1: sure how common this is, but I know about it because it's the reason that some English families have last names like Death, because their ancestors traditionally played Death in the mystery plays.
0: That's amazing. I love that. See, that is like, that's an instant D&D edition right there.
1: Now, this particular one is, like I said, from uh, the late medieval period. I think it's 15th century, so, like, the very end. And it's part of what are either called the Townley plays or the Wakefield cycle. Wakefield is the town where they were performed, and... This is one of the plays generally attributed to an author called the Wakefield Master, who wrote basically the most well-known plays in the cycle and is referred to as the Master because he was clearly very skilled. Right, of course. Or she, I guess. How would you know? Fair enough. They are also sometimes called the Townley plays because they were sold off by the Townley family in one of those, oh dear, our palatial estate may be running out of money, Please go dig one of those valuable medieval manuscripts out of the attic and sell it off for some cash. (laughs) One of those things that a lot of old, rich English families apparently do from time to time.
0: I mean, can you blame them?
1: I can blame them for not just making them all public.
0: Oh, 100% for sure. But, ooh, actually, addition to this, uh, because I... I think it's really interesting and important in the Renaissance, not as much in the Middle Ages, you had some of this in the Middle Ages, but particularly in the Renaissance, you would accrue physical wealth. And so you're typically used to seeing all the like lavish lifestyles of these Renaissance nobles, and you'd have the patrons. And the reason for this is that if you had physical wealth, you could always basically sell something off if you were in that position of, oh, like, oh, we're running out of money, or oh, I need to pay somebody back, or oh, you know, you've got a debt, you're like, oh, well, let me just give you my prized falcon. Or let me give you, you know, my sister's silk dress, and that would be enough, or you could use it as collateral. And then additionally, this was especially important for women, because they, in most, most cases, did not have control of the family's bank, the family's wealth, and, you know, money, money. So they would use gemstones, they would use fabrics as collateral, so they would be wearing all the wealth that they had. And so both displays of that sort of wealth and accruing that sort of wealth or getting your husband to buy you gems and jewels was a way of protecting yourself as a renaissance woman or man or however. So showing off your wealth was super important because you could be like millions of dollars in debt or, you know, modern day equivalent of millions of dollars in debt, etc. But be okay physically because you had the estates, you had the silks, etc, etc. So that's sort of the context or at least some sort of context that I find really, fascinating, because we think of these people as being in debt, but having tons and tons of wealth. And it's like, you look at them and you're like, oh, these guys are just failures. They're horrible politicians. No, like, yes, a lot of them were horrible politicians. Like, absolutely. <laughs> Let's make that context I clear. I can
1: now no longer tell if you're talking about the Renaissance or the current presidential administration.
0: Well, that's kind <laughs> of my point, is that... <laughs> You would have. I mean, see, but we, we are less of a physical economy now. So mm-hmm. if you get into debt now, you're sort of more in trouble because we use a lot of credit and we use you know the Federal Reserve. But back then in the Renaissance, you could be in debt in terms of credit, but you could counteract that with your physical wealth. And so you could hand off your estate for a couple of months and be like, don't worry, I'll pay it back. Here's my estate. It'll be in your name until I get you the money. And so that's how they would do it. So in some ways that was, you know, you could argue more successful than the system that we have now. But, you know, make some comparisons there if you like. All I'm saying is that the Renaissance does reflect a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of wealth disparity.
1: Yeah, I can see some comparisons. Like the whole handing off your estate thing doesn't sound unlike taking out a mortgage. A mortgage.
0: Yeah, yeah. So- you know, And a lot of it was more family-oriented, so you'd be handing off your estate to your uncle as collateral, as opposed to handing it off to the bank. Just some interesting medieval monetary context there that I find really fascinating.
1: Also, if people went around wearing a lot of their wealth, I can only imagine that kidnapping was booming.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, why not? Like, you don't even have to kidnap them for that long. You just, you know, they're on the road, you surround the carriage, you're like, Okay, you you pull a Robin Hood on them. Just give me all your rings, and I'm set.
1: Being a highwayman must have been so easy.
0: See, but then then you start getting into Renaissance mercenaries. You would hire mercenaries, and a lot of the times the mercenaries did better than the army of the little city-states that they had, because, well, one, you're employed by the state versus you're employed by really rich people who pay you better, and you can also eat their food. Why wouldn't you be a mercenary? Right. So, highwaymen still kind of, uh, but mercenary life in the Renaissance,
1: a little bit better. Also a parallel to today. True. <laughs> you can get rich being a mercenary today, but probably not being a soldier.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, private security, you'd earn way more money than anything you'd make in the military. A lot of special ops guys get out and then go and create their own private security companies.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, what's his f-? Betsy DeVos' brother? He has more money than he needs because of his private security work. There you go.
0: In any case, jumping back a couple hundred years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Back to the 15th century. What we've got here is I've modernized the text a lot just to make it more accessible. And also, in some cases where bits were very, very long-winded or didn't make sense, I kind of just cut them down to the essence of it. Okay. Now, there are a couple reasons I picked this play. One, it is the most well-known of the Wakefield cycle. But two, the character with the most lines is named Mac. And so obviously I'm reading his part
0: and he's a thief
1: he is a thief yes
0: does your family have any any background in thievery
1: if you look up the mcgregor clan it was literally illegal to be part of our family for a while oh my gosh like you couldn't marry in no you couldn't have the name you couldn't have the name if your name was mcgregor you had to change it <gasps> we were outlawed for like i forget how long but it was back in like the the 17th century or something oh. Future Mac here, since past Mac is not doing a good job of remembering the details, I will quickly quote from the Collins Scottish Clan and Family Encyclopedia. In April 1603, James VI issued an edict proclaiming the name of MacGregor altogether abolished, meaning that those who bore the name must renounce it or suffer death. MacGregor, i.e. the head of the clan at the time, along with 11 of his chieftains, was hanged at Edinburgh's Mercat Cross in January 1604. Clan Gregor was scattered, many taking other names such as Murray or Grant. They were hunted like animals, flushed out of the heather by bloodhounds. The law against having the name of Gregor was repealed in 1774, so it was about 170 years. So, there you go. Some probably completely irrelevant family history for you. Oh.
0: A personal feud, or was this when the English were like, We're gonna get rid of Irish and like Scots?
1: A little bit of both. It was because the English were siding with one of our rival clans, the Campbells.
0: I love this. There needs to be a TV show made about this.
1: There was a movie.
0: There was?
1: Yeah. Rob Roy McGregor, one of my ancestors, was a fairly famous cattle thief, and there's a movie about him out there somewhere. That's a. Amazing. And a book by Sir Walter Scott.
0: Oh my gosh. You come from some legendary stock.
1: I don't know how close the relationship is. I just know it's the same clan.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so who am I reading?
1: All right, so you're Gib and Daw, two of the three shepherds. Okay. And I've also given you both of the female parts in the play. Okay,
0: fantastic. Okay, so I've got four parts to play here. Okay.
1: Yeah, and I've got three, plus I'm reading the stage directions. I tried to make it as even a split oh, as possible. Oh, that's fair.
0: That's fair. Okay. I've got to find my accents for all of these.
1: All right. While you do that, let me share with the audience. If there is any call for it, we can put this on, in PDF forms up on the website. Mm-hmm. Our characters are... Call, Gib, and Daw—all uh, three of whom are shepherds. Call is short for Nicholas, like in the same way uh, Xander is short for Alexander. Its uh, shortening it didn't survive. Wouldn't it be Cole? Could be Cole. Fair enough. Okay. Gib is short for Gilbert, and Daw is short for David. I like These it. These are all. Shortenings that I think are no longer common. As far as I can tell, Mac isn't short for anything. Unlike mine where it's, as just alluded to, it's short for McGregor. But his is spelled with a K instead of a C. So I think it's just a standalone name.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: His wife is called Gill, which is just the medieval form of Jill.
0: I love that. Okay.
1: And... Those are the only characters whose names need to be addressed. We also have brief appearances by some biblical figures whose names are what you expect.
0: The angel and Mary, a virgin. It's literally her name in this. I love that. Mary, a virgin.
1: Well, to be fair, the little descriptions and dramatic personae are entirely my work.
0: I'm enjoying it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me know when you're ready.
0: I think I've got it. We're going to roll with it. The accents might change, but you know what? We're just going to go with it improvisation is the key to good stage acting she said also making that up
1: i'm not sure how accurate that is but it might be true it's proving I my point about stage acting
0: it's proving my point <laughs> okay and see.
1: Open on a field in medieval Yorkshire. It's a winter night, cold and windy, with rain pouring down in sheets. Enter Cole, the First Shepherd. He takes center stage for his opening soliloquy. God, it's cold out, and it doesn't help that I can't afford warm clothes. I'm tired and my hands have gone numb, my legs are about to collapse under me and my fingers are chapped. I don't want to be here, I'm wrapped in sorrow and surrounded by storms. Woe is he who has no rest. But we pitiful shepherds who wander on the moors are always on the verge of losing our homes. It's no wonder we're so poor. Our lands lie fallow. We are constrained, overtaxed, and beaten down. We are kept tame by the oppression of the gentry. They deprive us of any rest, may Mary curse them. Those who are bound to a lord cause the plow to tarry and say it is for the best. We say it is for the worst. And uh, note here. What he's talking about is enclosure, where land was made into like little fenced off fields for grazing of livestock. That was basically depriving peasants of the land they would use to grow their crops. And so a lot of peasant farmers were forced into being peasant shepherds, which was better for the landowners, but worse for the peasants.
0: Makes sense. Are we, I'm assuming we're also still going to be stopping to pause at any ridiculousness that we find in this
1: yes absolutely
0: okay great just checking
1: thus our shepherds oppressed to the point of suffering death thus they hold us under thus they take all comfort from us it would be a wonder if ever we should thrive for any man that gets a painted sleeve or a brooch nowadays uh, another note These are the Lord's retainers. They wore tokens to show their loyalty and authority, like a painted sleeve or a brooch. He's he's talking about people like bailiffs and stewards and the like.
0: Like the King's Hand in Game of Thrones, for those who are familiar.
1: Yeah. So these people, still talking about them. Woe is he that in any way speaks against him or inconveniences him. No man dares reproach these bailiffs, whatever arrogance they display, and no man may ignore any word they say. They can invoke purveyance with their boasts and maintain their lifestyles on the backs of better men. So purveyance is basically the medieval equivalent of what we now call civil asset forfeiture. When someone with uh, any kind of like uh, legal authority can just roll up and go like, hey, because of X, Y, and Z, that's mine now. Nowadays, it's, we think your car may have been used or related to the commission of a crime we're taking it but back then it was more to like oh we need to uh, help make things move smoothly here in the community maybe there's an official moving through who needs a horse to uh, travel properly we're taking your horse and they could just do that the same way that again the cops can invoke civil asset forfeiture pretty much however they want
0: For an example that is kind of in between this time period and modern day, think of redcoats being housed in the American Revolution. They're like, hey, we need places to stay. You guys are going to put them up. You guys are going to feed them at your expense.
1: Yeah, same kind of idea. This this is a, a longstanding thing that people with royal authority or military authority or governmental authority can just say. We need something, and because we make the laws, you have to give it to us. It just gets different names in different time periods.
0: And it's horrible.
1: Yeah, I'm not a fan.
0: I don't like it. Okay.
1: But back to Cole's complaints about this policy. Yeah. Some bailiff as proud as a peacock can just rock up at any time and demand the use of my plow and wagon. I'm obliged to give it to him. Thus are we obliged night and day to live in pain, anger, and woe. The bailiff must have whatever he wants, and I must go without, for I would be better off on the gallows if I were ever to tell him no. It does me good to vent as I walk alone. I will go to my sheep and sit on a ridge or stone, for I believe that the others will arrive soon so we can keep each other company, if they are true companions. Cole moves to one side as Gibb, the second shepherd, enters. Gibb takes center stage.
0: Okay, and feel free to interrupt me when there's one of the footnotes. I'll, I'll stop at the end of the paragraphs and you can explain the footnotes because I haven't, I haven't read these. All right. God, what does this all mean? Why is the world like this? The weather is spiteful, the wind keen, the frost hideous. It makes my eyes water, no lie. Which is apparently in
1: the original text. Yep, that is, that is direct.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. In the dry, in the wet... In the snow, in the sleet, when my shoes freeze to my feet, it's not all easy. But as far as I know, wherever one goes, we married men suffer and always have sorrow. Silly coupled our hen, cackles, groans, clucks and croaks as she goes to and fro. But our woe is the rooster, for he
1: is constrained. And a note, this and has the same name as the one from the Tournament of Tottenham. Because apparently it was a common name for chickens at the time. A copple is the word for the comb on top of their head. So it's like naming a dog Spot. That's amazing.
0: Those men who are married do not get their way. When they are ill-served, they just sigh quietly. God knows their lives are difficult, as they do not get their way in the home or in bed. I have my lot. I've learned my lesson. Woe is he to who is married for he must abide but now late in men's lives such wonder breaks my heart that some have two wives and even three i'll wager they were even worse off and feel sore you young men out wooing for god's sake beware of marriage remember you'll get no benefit from if only i'd known much silent sorrow and misfortune has been brought by weddings and you may suffer enough pain in an hour to last you all your life I swear I've got a wife at home By the fire who is sharp as thistles And rough as briars Bristle brows and of sour disposition Once she wets her whistle She can sing the patter no, sir At the top of her lungs She is the size of a whale And has the bile by the gallon By God, I wish I could lose her
1: And our note is that wet her whistle Is also directly from the original text
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh All right <laughs>
1: May God watch over the audience. You stand like a deaf man.
0: May the devil be in your mouth for eavesdropping. Have you seen Daw anywhere?
1: I heard him down on the pasture land earlier. He should be here soon. Stand still. And why? I think he's coming now.
0: (laughs) He'll lie to us both unless we're careful.
1: Enter Daw, the third shepherd. He is the youngest of the three and does not notice the other two listening.
0: Christ and Saint Nick help me It's worse than it was I lost him You're gone I told you I was going to do weird voices
1: I wasn't expecting that
0: one oh, I'm a terrible person and my Scottish is awful All right, Christ and Saint Nick help me it's worse than it was. Those you know, take heed and let the world pass. It is ever in dread and brittle as glass as it slips away. The world has never been so. With more and more strange things, both good and bad, everything seems like it's changing. A flood like this hasn't been seen since Noah. The wind and rain so rough and storms so keen. I suppose some staggered and stood in doubt. Now God turns all to good, for consider, this flood pours down equally on every one, both in field and town, and that is a wonder. We that walk in the night, to keep our cattle see unexpected sights when other men sleep, but my heart lightens. I see two shrews watching. You two are such unpleasant fellows, I'd better drive my sheep in another direction. Ah, but my words are ill-spoken. As I walk on this heath, perhaps I will do penance by stubbing my toe. Sir, God save you and my master, have you anything for me to eat or drink?
1: And the note uh, that I have attached to this is that it is unclear who Dahl works for, because Cole and Gib both seem to have some kind of authority over him and share responsibility for the same flock. So, which one is his master is unclear. Ah, okay. God curse you, knave, for an idle cheat.
0: The boy arrives. He has come too late and we've already eaten the food we brought. Though does he look hungry. Unfortunately, working men like us have to live on dry bread. We are wet and weary outside while our masters sleep. Food and drink come slowly to us while our lord and lady can very quickly take a bite out of our wages and pay us later. But sir, if you are displeased by my tiredliness, hear this truth. I shall work according to the wages I receive. I shall work for a little and play in between, for I never get so much food that my stomach feels heavy in the fields. But why argue? Men always say that a cheap bargain repays poorly.
1: You would be a poor choice to accompany a man on wooing if he had little spending money.
0: Ah, oh, peace boy. No more idle chatter I'll make you sorry for it. Where are our sheep? Well, they left them in the grain field Well, they ring the lords. They have a good pasture there.
1: Uh, we have a couple footnotes attached to that first. Leaving your sheep in the grain field is technically illegal.
0: <laughs> this guy's <laughs> an incompetent.
1: <laughs> and uh, lords is the, is the dawn prayer. So he's saying, like, oh, yeah, I left them uh, in the fields at dawn. And so they're eating someone's crops.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah, DAW's not really on top of it here.
1: (laughs) Sounds about right. Before we part, someone should provide a song.
0: That might cheer us up. I agree.
1: I will sing the tenor.
0: And I the treble. Then the middle falls on me. All right. One, two, one, two, three, four.
1: They sing. Zoe, do you have a song in your heart? Ah! Oh, Lord. Oh, dear. Okay.
0: And all will be claimed more good, Michel, me, wait and fast is hear jealous Er to a clue of gold, and all will All right, that was good. Thank you.
1: <laughs> During the song, enter Mac. He is wearing a cloak over his shepherd's clothes. God by your seven names, you who made the moon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love how diverse this little village is. All right. Yes, continue.
1: <laughs> you who made the moon and the stars, your will is unclear to me. I am unsettled in my mind. I wish I dwelt in heaven with you, where no children cry and I can have peace. Who is that that pipes so poorly? God, I wish you knew what I put up with. A man who walks on the moors and has no freedom.
0: What's up, Mac? Where are you going? Is he coming over here? Oh, everyone keep your hands on your wallets.
1: Mac reaches the others and Daw pulls the cloak off. How dare you? I am a servant of the king, a messenger from a great lord and things of that nature. Fire upon you, leave my presence. I deserve reverence, and you ask who I am? What is this nonsense?
0: Mark, are you trying to play the saint? I believe that the shoes can counterfeit may the devil hang him.
1: I shall complain to my lord. I can have you all flogged at a word if I tell him what you did. Is that so, Mac? Take out that southern tooth and stick it in a turd. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Uh, A note for the audience. Uh, This is uh, from the north of England, so the southern tooth is a reference to Mac putting on an uh, an accent from the London
0: Oh, so he's doing the posh RP. Okay.
1: Yes, but I can't do that, so I did southern, southern accent. That's beautiful. I, <laughs> I love it, and it works.
0: <laughs> the devil's in your eye, Mac, and i like to give you a smack upside the head. Are you going to keep pretending like you don't know us, Mac? I'd like to hit you too.
1: Oh, it's y'all! I thought I saw you good fellas. Oh, now we're back to reality.
0: Look, Shrew, what are people going to think if they see you walk around here late at night? You have a bad reputation as a sheep thief. What?!
1: Everyone knows I am an honest man. But at the moment, I am feverish with illness, and my stomach troubles me.
0: Seldom does the devil lie dead by the road.
1: This is another direct translation, because I really like the phrase. Oh, it's great! Yeah, according to the team's edition, is it, the sense of it is, the devil doesn't truly suffer and thus should not be trusted or given sympathy. That is, if you see the devil lying dead by the road, it's probably a trap.
0: I think I've still heard this phrase. Really? I think so.
1: I am I believe that it's still in currency, but I've never heard it before.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've heard it before. Hmm. Go figure.
1: I am deathly ill. As sure as I stand here, I've hardly eaten so much as a needle this month. Mm-hmm. How's the wife? She lies by the fireplace in a house full of children. She drinks well, but everything else she does goes badly. She eats a lot. And every year she gives birth to another mouth or two to feed. Even if I were a rich and generous man, I would still be eaten out of house and home by my family. And if you come too close, you'll see that my sweetheart can be awfully foul. I don't think you could find a worse one. I would give everything I had to hear her funeral mass said.
0: They just hate these women. Yeah, well... Everybody hates their wives. This is such a boomer. Right? Play.
1: (laughs) It's like, oh, I hate my wife, <laughs> which is weird because when we meet Gill later, like she and Mac actually seem to be very much on the same wavelength. Like they're not exactly like lovey dovey with each other, but you, they're getting on. They're very similar people.
0: Huh. All right, I'm excited. Okay, I will bet nobody in this shire is as tired as I am. I'd love to sleep right now, even if it meant having my pay docked. I am cold and underdressed, and wish we could have a fire.
1: I'm spent. I've been running around in the mud all day. One of you keep watch.
0: Not it. I need sleep. I'm as good a man as either of you, and won't stay awake while you sleep. Mac, lie between us.
1: Uh, And what's uh, left unspoken here is that this is so Mac can't steal the sheep while they're sleeping, because if if he's (laughs) in between them, then him getting up to do something will wake them. If it will keep you from assuming the worst about me, no fear. From my head to my toes, Manus tua commendo Pontius Pilato. Christ help me. And this Latin is one of several examples in the text of the shepherds not actually knowing Latin and getting their phrases mixed up.
0: That's amazing. So
1: Mac just said, Into your hands I commend Pontius Pilate.
0: <laughs> That's so deliberate. Because the audience knows. Yeah. Because they would have heard this in mass every single year, most likely.
1: Right. And there's an open question for this particular line of whether it's just an error of an illiterate man who's gotten what he's heard in church kind of mixed up. Or if it's intentionally sinister because of uh, the rest of this scene, which is mostly Mac talking in stage direction. So I'm going to have to do some bits. Once the others are asleep, Mac carefully rises without waking them. Now it is time for one who lacks what he wants to sneak into a sheepfold and work nimbly therein. But be not too bold, or he might pay for it in the end. But the penniless man who wishes to profit needs good counsel. Mac draws a magic circle around the sleeping shepherds.
0: Yes, we've got magic in this too!
1: Around you a circle as round as the moon to last until noon. You shall lie stone still until I am finished. Over your heads, I lift my hands. Your eyes go out, your sight is destroyed. But still, I must make better work, if it is to be right. In some way not specified in the text, Mac improves the setup of his spell as the others snore noisily. Lord, how heavily and loudly they sleep. Though I've never been a shepherd, I'll certainly learn now. I shall creep near the flock, even if they seem scooped. As Mac speaks, he sneaks up to the sheep and leads one away. Come here, you. You shall turn our sorrow to cheer. A fat sheep you are, I dare say. And I wager that's some good fleece on you. I'll pay them back for the loan when I can. Mac goes back to his house with the sheep and calls for his wife. Gil, are you up? Give us a light!
0: Oh, sure, look it. Who's making such a noise at this hour? I was just sitting down to spin in hopes that we might earn a few extra pennies. I curse those who constantly interrupt a housewife when she tries to make a profit through some small chores.
1: Open the door already, hun! i I've got something for you.
0: Oh, I suppose I could unlatch it. Come in, sweetheart.
1: Finally. Gil notices the sheep.
0: you're liable to hang for that.
1: Hey, I have to get food for us somewhere. In a bind, I can profit better than those who spend the whole day toiling and sweating. This was just a lucky strike.
0: Still, it'd be a shame to get hanged for it.
1: Gilly, honey, I get away with this sort of thing all the time.
0: As they say, though the pot often goes to the water, eventually it comes home broken.
1: Yes, I know the saying, but you're going to jinx (laughs) us. Come on, give me a hand. It's been a solid year since I last had mutton.
0: If the others come before we slaughter the sheep in here or something.
1: Then I'd be caught for sure. That's a chilling thought. Get the door, would you? Right on it. Jill, Gill closes and locks the door.
0: If you were followed... Then
1: I'd suffer at the hands of that whole pack.
0: I have an idea for how we can hide the sheep until suspicion blows <sighs> over. We put it in the cradle, under the blankets, and I lie in bed and groan as I've just given birth.
1: And I'll make sure to tell the others that we've just had a baby boy.
0: Ah, oh, it was a happy day that saw me born. This is a clever trick I've come up with for you. It's always a woman's advice that saves the day. Mm. Now go back to that field. You never know if someone's watching.
1: Yes, it'll be trouble if they wake up before I get back. Matt returns to the place where the others are sleeping. Good, they're still asleep. I'll slip in between them and make like I was there the whole time. He does so, and eventually falls asleep later cold wakes resurrex a give me a hand you the scarnous dominus i'm too stiff to get up on my own my foot is asleep and of weak from hunger i thought that we had laid ourselves near england
0: man i slept well i feel as light as a leaf and as fresh as an eel
1: a couple things i like those similes <laughs> they're great I don't know what Laid Ourselves Near England is about. Both of Cole's lines are more mangled Latin. Uh Amazing. The first one is probably meant to be Resurrexit Amortuis, he rose from the dead. And the second one is probably supposed to be Laudus Canis Domino, sing praises to the Lord. Oh,
0: and not anything that has to do with Judas. No,
1: no, that's uh, Judas instead of Laudus.
0: Ah, uh, makes it, sense. That
1: that's, it doesn't even make any sense. It just means Judas meet right. Lord. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was, I was reading it like <laughs> I don't. I don't follow this one.
1: <laughs> oh man. Okay. Anyway, Gib helps call up. Dahl wakes as I do this.
0: Oh. Bless me, I'm shaking and my heart is beating fast. Who's making all this noise? I go pale with fear. Let me get to the door. Wake up, everyone. There were four of us. Where? Where's Mac?
1: Wake up. We were up before you.
0: And I swear to God, I didn't notice Mac going anywhere. Well, I thought that he was wearing a wolf skin.
1: Many are, but only on the inside.
0: When we slept, I thought he stole away in a fat sheep in silence. Calm down, it was only a dream.
1: God brings good out of bad, if it be his will.
0: Wake up, Mac. For shame, you're sleeping too late.
1: Christ and St. James, I can barely move. I think I laid on my neck wrong. One of the others helps him up. Many thanks. By St. Stephen, last night I had a dream that flayed (laughs) my heart with fear. I thought Gil began to moan and go into difficult labour. Then at the cocktail... (laughs) A boy was Sorry, born, I just love this. adding to our flock. I have more flax on my distaff than I had before. Ah, my head. A house full of young bellies may the devil knock out their brains. Woe is he who has many children and little bread. I have to go home to Gill. By your leave, of course. I didn't steal anything. Look, nothing up my sleeve. I would never grieve you or take anything from you. A couple notes on this. The idiom flax on my distaff means business to attend to. And the nothing up my sleeve is another pretty direct translation. He doesn't say literally nothing up my sleeve, but he does invite them to check and see if he has something hidden in his sleeve.
0: Nice. checking in the wallets. Okay. All right, go. And fare ill.
1: Exit Mac.
0: Now we better check and make sure we're not missing any sheep.
1: I'll go count mine. We should meet up after we've all looked.
0: Meet where? At the Crooked Thorn. What does that mean, by the way? Is that just some unspecified location?
1: Local landmark. There's been some discussion of this, that maybe it's a specific hawthorn tree in the area.
0: Hmm. I like that. It could be used as a landmark in DD. I also suggest a pub.
1: Yeah, it's a good pub name.
0: It's a good pub name.
1: Meanwhile, Mac is back at his house. Unlock the door! It's me! How long were you planning to keep me waiting?
0: All right, who is making all that noise? Go walk in the waning moon.
1: The waning moon was considered unlucky. This is another thing I've footnoted, which is unfortunate since like half of all nights have a waning moon. But in this context, go walk in the waning moon is a mild curse with probably the same freight as go take a long walk on a short pier.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Get cursed.
1: Ah, Gil, what cheer you bring. It's your husband at the door.
0: Oh, then we can be a crowd in here, the devil in our band. No, here comes Sir Guile, making a noise as if he were held by the throat. I can't even sit to my work for a second, can I?
1: Oh, listen to the noise she makes to excuse her not getting anything done while she does nothing but play and scratch her toes.
0: Who wanders and wakes? Who comes and goes? Who brews and bakes? What do you think makes me so hoarse all the time? It's pitiful to behold how woeful a house is without a woman who can be... But what happened with the shepherds?
1: Uh, the last thing I heard as they were leaving is that they were going to check for missing sheep. I don't think they'll be pleased when they find one missing by God. But that's how the game goes. They'll suspect me of course and come shouting after me. You need to make the arrangements we talked about.
0: On it, I'll wrap the sheep in swaddling clothes and hide it in the cradle.
1: She does so, then admires her work.
0: And I'd be able to pull up your caper if necessary. Now I'll lie down, come wrap me in the blankets. Yes dear. Make sure to get them round my back as well. And if Cole and his buddies come, they'll search us thoroughly.
1: I'll cry out if they find the sheep.
0: Keep an ear out, they'll be here soon. Get everything ready. And then start singing a little boy while I groan. Sing loudly as soon as you hear them. This'll work. I stake my reputation.
1: <sighs> Meanwhile, at the crooked thorn, the shepherds meet.
0: Morning, Cole.
1: Alas, that I was ever born! A disgrace! We are missing a sheep. <laughs>
0: Oh, God forbid. I would do such a thing?
1: Some shrew. I searched through the brushwood with dogs and found all but one sheep.
0: I would swear by St. Thomas the Becket that either Mac or Gil was involved.
1: Peace, man. We all saw when he left. You should be ashamed of such slander.
0: I bet all my life it was Mac somehow. I suggest we head to his place right now. I swear to never eat bread until I know the truth.
1: Then I swear I will not take a drink until we meet with him.
0: And I swear never to sleep in the same place twice until we get our hands on him.
1: They head towards Mac's house. As they approach, Mac begins to sing a lullaby loudly and off key, and Gil groans in pain.
0: Uh, Oh, John growls.
1: A bouldering in the grave Ah, The sons of bondage whom ah, he ventured all to save But ah, though he lost his life ah, while struggling for the slave His ah, truth ah, is marching on
0: (laughs) 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 Will you listen to how they warble? Our friend certainly enjoys grooming
1: I've never heard anyone so out of tune Call him to the door Matt, let us in Who was shouting at my door so early in the morning? Right, because
0: you'd be sure to let us in if it were afternoon.
1: Mac comes to the door. Speak quietly, y'all. My wife lies sick and can't stand the noise, and I would rather die than cause her to suffer more.
0: Oh, go away! Every footstep makes my head ache.
1: How are you doing, Mac? Fine, and you? What are you doing in town today? Oh, you're all wet and muddy. Come sit by the fire. Matt continues to speak as he ushers them in. It looks like I'm going to need to hire a nursemaid. Remember what I said earlier? My dream was true. Gil gave birth to a son last night. Not like we don't already have enough children, but one drinks what one brews. Speaking of, can I offer you all any food or drink? I know you fellows work hard. And this this is another idiom that uh, I kind of enjoy. One drinks with what, what one brews is like the same general idea as you reap what you sow.
0: Food and drink will not help our bar mood. Oh, what's the matter? One of our sheep was stolen last night.
1: Dear me. Here, have a drink. He fetches drinks. If I'd been there, you can bet I would have fought off that thief for you. You know some folk he nods towards Gibendal to think you were there and were not thrilled about it.
0: Some folk think you were the thief. Either you or your wife?
1: Well, if you suspect us, feel free to search our home, but I swear I have taken no livestock, and poor Gil is bedridden. (laughs) Be careful what you swear.
0: Go away, thieves! They ransack our home!
1: Do her moans not melt your heart? (laughs) I'm not sure if these are moans. Good lord. The shepherds start to approach the crib.
0: Thieves! Villains! Don't you go anywhere near, my child!
1: Your hearts would ache if you knew how she suffered in childbirth. You do wrong to trouble a woman who has just given birth. But I say no more.
0: Oh, my belly! I swear to God, if I ever lied to you, I will eat the child that lies in this cradle.
1: Be at peace, woman, for God's sake. You're liable to hurt yourself if you get over agitated.
0: I think the sheep's already slaughtered. Did you two find anything? Nothing. We may as well go. By the holy garment of Christ, there's no meat in this house at all. Hard or soft, fresh or salted, just empty plates. And no living animal but the baby, who smells just awful, by the way. That's right, no meat. Now leave us alone with our new baby.
1: I guess we were wrong.
0: I guess so. Mac, is it boy or a girl?
1: Any lord would be pleased to have this child for a son. It's a joy to see how he grabs when he is awake.
0: Ah, oh, a happy and good future to him. Who are his godparents?
1: And This is a reasonable question, as I, as I have in the note, because at this time, uh, the godparents, who were, of course, then a more, like, serious position as whoever is supposed to be your spiritual instructor, they were expected to be present at the baptism, and the baptism was supposed to happen as soon as possible after birth, just in case. So if they're at home and the child's in the crib, presumably they've already rushed to the church and had him baptised, which means that they would have Godparents to name. Oh, bless them! Uh, I sense a lie coming. Parkin and Gibbon Waller, and gentle John Horn, he who made all that disturbance with his long legs. <laughs> Team suggests this is a, like an inside joke for the actors who put these plays on. In the first shepherd's play, one of the shepherds is named John Horn and presumably was played by a tall and lanky man. That's
0: amazing! I love it! Okay. Matt, we're sorry for suspecting you. Let us extend an offer of friendship and solidarity.
1: All things being equal, I'd rather look after my own. Anyway, nice to see you, but I'm sure you should be on your way. The shepherds depart.
0: Fair words there may be, but no love this year.
1: Did either of you remember to give a gift for the child?
0: Oh. No, not a farthing. I'm going to go back and take care of that. Wait
1: up for me, will you? Daw hurries off stage. After a brief pause, the other two shrug and follow at a more reasonable pace. When they arrive at Mac's house, Mac and Daw are mid-argument.
0: Mac, I'm not trying to avenge you by going to your child. I don't
1: like you barging in here. It's disgraceful.
0: The little D star will not be upset. Just let me give your family sixpence to buy you something.
1: The baby is asleep. You need to leave. I thought I heard them moving. He's awake, he cries. Just go, will you?
0: Just let me give the little child a kiss before I leave.
1: Before Matt can stop him, Dahl lifts part of the blanket from the crib to uncover the child's face, then abruptly drops the blanket in surprise.
0: What the devil is this? He's got a long snout.
1: The child's deformed. We're prying into matters we should have left alone.
0: Ah, uh, ill-spun work leads to bad cloth. You know, he looks a bit like a sheep. Let me take another look.
1: Nature will crawl where it cannot walk.
0: This was a clever fraud. I say we ban this woman for her criminality. See how they've wrapped up the hooves? But I've
1: never seen a baby with horns before. Peace, peace, I swear this is a child I sired and my wife bore. And I suppose you've named him after yourself. Ah, this is Max Eyre.
0: Leave off joking. God will bring him what he deserves. He is a child, as pretty as any, that sits on a woman's knee. A darling by God, and one to make any man laugh with joy. I it now, is it you recognize the ear, Mac. This sheep's one of ours.
1: No, no, look, his nose was broken, and a clerk told me he was bewitched. He is but a poor, unfortunate baby boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you need some payback. Anyone have a weapon? <laughs>
0: was attacked by an elf. I saw it happen. When the clock struck midnight, he was thus misshapen. Oh, wait, hang
1: on. Yeah, I guess the use of y'all doesn't really work with the accent you've picked.
0: I um, yeah, okay. You are certainly two peas in a pod. Since they're doubling down on their crime, surely they should be put to death for this. I
1: am at your mercy. If I trespass again, you may cut off my head.
0: I've got an idea. Let's leave off arguing. We can have the sheep back. No harm, no foul. Let's just toss Mac in canvas for the inconvenience and call it even.
1: Alright, so this is something I have a substantial footnote for. Uh, Because of the way that canvas is very loosely woven, it was often used as a winnowing cloth. You'd put your grain in like a hammock thing and shake it, causing it to act like a sieve and separate out the chaff. Tossing someone in canvas was a form of like rough-and-ready peasant justice where a few men put oh the gosh. offender in one of these winnowing claws and shook him around like a pile of grain until they were worn out. Uh, it was painful, unpleasant, and humiliating for the person in the cloth, but unlikely to cause permanent harm. And I have a citation that we can put on the blog later. Yes. So they toss him in canvas until they're too tired to continue. Matt goes back into his house, droning in pain, while the shepherds take their sheep back to the field. <laughs> God, that left me sore. I need to rest a moment.
0: He weighed as much as a full-grown sheep. I'd really like him now. Let's just lay down here in the field for a bit.
1: I'm still angry about those thieves.
0: Let it go. We're even.
1: With the chorus of Gloria in excelsis an angel appears. Rise, virtuous shepherds For he is born who will rescue from the fiend Those whom Adam lost and destroy that old warlock He was born this past night And this morning God promises you friendship Go to Bethlehem and see the noble one Who lies in a crib between two beasts Exit angel
0: Wait, I love that this is also set, like, outside of Bethlehem
1: (laughs) Yeah there's a lot of just completely ignored anachronism in that these are supposedly the same shepherds who show up at the manger, but they're earlier swearing by Mary and, and St. Thomas a Becket, so they're, it's also clearly set in the 15th century. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. That was a marvelous voice, but a frightening experience.
0: He spoke of a son of God. And made the woods bright f- as a flash of lightning. He spoke of a child in Bethlehem.
1: So signifies that star. Let us seek him there.
0: What was that song? He sang it so well. Perfectly, with no note wrong or missing.
1: I think we could sing it here ourselves.
0: Let's see how you croon. Can you bark at the moon?
1: That's also a direct translation, by the way. I just liked that.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> right.
1: Uh, shut up. Follow my lead. One, two, one, two, three, four. Zoe, would you like to sing Gloria for us?
0: Uh, I'll do a bit of it. Gloria, in excelsis Deo. There we go. (laughs) Hey, weren't we supposed to be going to bed for them? We should probably get a move on. Be merry, our song is one of Marth.
1: Though we be wet and weary, let us go forth and see the child and lady. We must not lose this opportunity. The following lines are all spoken in a sort of travel montage.
0: Did not David and Isaiah prophesy that a virgin should bring forth a child to free us from sin? We should look forward to seeing that lovable and almighty one. I wish to kneel and to speak to that child, though the angel said he was poorly provided for in his crib.
1: The Patriarchs and Prophets wished so much to meet this very child, but they did not live to see the day. I expect we'll see him before the morning, and when we do, we will know that the Prophet spoke truly, that he would appear to people poor as we are, declared by his messenger.
0: Let's go, it's not far. I can't wait to get there. Let us hurry together to that Bright One. Lord, if it be the will. Provide for us, poor unlearned folk, some gift to give the child.
1: As they approach the stable, they are indeed provided with gifts. Cole finds cherries growing out of season. Gib somehow gets hold of a bird, presumably a live one, it's (laughs) unclear. And Daw finds a toy ball. The shepherds enter the stable. Cole approaches the manger. Hail, young child, fair and pure. Hail, Creator, come from a maiden so mild. I suppose you have already cursed that old warlock Satan, the cruel trickster tricked. Jesus makes happy baby noises.
0: Is that heresy to speak to speak the words of Christ in such a way? I
1: don't know <laughs> if that counts or not.
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to liven it up. Oh, dear.
1: Lo, he is merry. Lo, how he laughs, my sweet one. A joyful encounter. I have kept my promise. Look, I bob of cherries. He displays the cherries, then presumably hands them over to Mary or Joseph. Gib approaches the manger.
0: Hail, sovereign savior. We've been looking for you. Hail, noble child and flower who is made as all things. Hail, full of f- favour, you who made the world from nothing. Hail, I kneel and I cower. I have brought the child a bird.
1: I suppose at this point Gibbs somehow makes the bird evident. Ah!
0: Hail, tiny little mop. You are at the top of our religious beliefs. I would drink from your cup, little day star.
1: He does actually call him a mop in the original text, by the way. That's Amazing. why I kept that.
0: Amazing.
1: Daw approaches the manger.
0: Hail, darling dear, full of divinity. I pray you be near when I have need. Sweet is your countenance. My heart blades, seeing you here penniless in such poor raiment. Put forth your hand. I have brought you only a ball.
1: Daw gives the ball to Jesus.
0: Keep it and play with it. And go to the tennis.
1: That's also verbatim. In the fifteenth century, tennis was a game for the aristocracy. Mm. So that's why it's a it's a positive wish. Uh.
0: The father of heaven, God omnipotent, he he who made all the world in seven days has sent us his son. He spoke my name and his son alighted within me before he left. I I conceived him as he intended through his power and now now he is born. He will keep you from woe. I ask him to spread the news as you go and remember this morning and remember this morning.
1: Farewell, lady. So fair to behold with your child on your knee.
0: But he lies so cold. Lord, well is me. Now we should go.
1: Yeah, no idea what that bit about lying cold is, by the way. Maybe he's still upset that he doesn't have a proper crib.
0: I think so. I think that's the, the implication there. Truly, it seems as though the news has already been told far and wide.
1: I'd like to think that is a nod to all the anachronisms in the earlier part of the play. (laughs) Where he's like, wow, it feels like this has already been spread all over the place. Whoa! What grace we have found.
0: Come, now we are saved. We are bound to sing as we go. One, two... One two three four.
1: I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, scaramouche. Will you do the fandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo. magnifico. That's all I got. (laughs) Well done. Exeunt omnes. Explicit.
0: The end. So this is amazing. Wow. You know, I'm impressed by how well I feel like I got Gib and Daw's character, because Gib was typically f- fairly sour mm-hmm. about the whole thing, but Daw was a bit more, you know, excited.
1: <laughs> very, very excitable chap, Daw.
0: Yes, Especially yes. the part
1: where he's like, can we burn them at the stake now? <laughs> <laughs>
0: like oh i don't like them but then later he's like oh just let it go yeah. like, we're even
1: very mercurial you know
0: what's the uh the degree of difference between burning people at the stake and then you know shaking them up in some you know some fabric
1: i think that's a fairly sizable difference
0: i would argue but Daw doesn't really seem to to think that way yeah oh man i'm just reeling from this entire thing because <laughs> i was thinking like okay this is set in like England, you know, because they're they're referencing all these saints and they're referencing Mary. But no, nope. They apparently zoomed back in time to go see Mary, who has one line.
1: Yeah. I also suspect that uh, the I thought we lay near England thing that Cole said early on was another kind of subtle nod to the fact that we're not actually in England. We're acting like like we are. And in all ways, like the script seems to imply we are. But Mm -hmm. we're in Bethlehem. (laughs)
0: It's amazing that we have political commentary as well at the very beginning of this. Yeah. He's like, let me just go off on the entire political establishment. And oh, by the way,
1: you know, Jesus. Yeah, I did really enjoy that Cole started it with basically, you know, A-C-A-B.
0: That's amazing. I love it. Because like the whole Jesus thing is like the footnote to this entire (laughs) play. Because the story is not about Jesus. The story is about... Ah! the the sheep thief
1: yeah no it's, it's just like this is what the shepherds were up to before they came to see jesus
0: i love it i feel like this explains a lot about humor at this time in england and it, it explains a lot of, of shakespeare's works as well if you if you look at it as the evolution of plays because this who was the intended audience of this play like, was Wakefield a town with an aristocracy that would be watching I this? Think it
1: was a pretty small town. And most mystery plays are, were for a very, like, public, common audience.
0: Right. So I'm wondering if the Latin... I'm wondering how, how much would they have understood that the Latin was botched on purpose. Or if it was botched on purpose. Because the jabs at the aristocracy, I understand. And the entire thief skit, I understand. Because we see that in the sagas as well is people like hiding their husbands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. So the fact that it's a, a, oh a sheep a sheep. I would love to see this acted out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. According to Wikipedia, by the way, Wakefield was a noble manor. Oh. Okay. And according to this, it formed the caput or like the ancestral seat of an extensive baronial holding by the Warren family. Oh. So there were aristocrats, like, in town.
0: Right, right. But who knows where they would have shown up.
1: The actual town was only a few hundred people. And and the people who were working the manor nearby, so like a handful of farmers and shepherds. Wow. And as for the Shakespearean influence, Mm. these plays were performed for a long time.
0: So they're probably contemporary.
1: Yeah. The Wikipedia entry on the Wakefield plays says that they were performed as late as 1576, which I believe puts them into Shakespeare's lifetime.
0: Mm, Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. And during the Elizabethan era, women could not be actors. That's true. So was this early enough that women had an autonomy to be an actor? I don't know. Because when did that start? Let me see if I can figure that out. Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Uh, Future Mac here. There is a really long digression where both of us try and Google around and find answers to this. But since it doesn't really make great radio, and in the interest of keeping this episode under the two-hour mark, I've just cut the whole thing. The answer that we eventually land on is that in England, there were not female actors during the medieval period as far as we know. There were some on the continent and there were women involved in drama in other capacities but as far as we could find no women on the stage so Gil and Mary were probably both played by men. Zoe did however find a source that indicates that women participated in mystery plays at least once in the 16th century and also that Within convents, there were private theatrical productions where obviously everyone involved would be nuns, and therefore women, because it would be way more scandalous to import a bunch of actors from town. I believe Zoe will put the sources for those up on the blog, so you can check it out for yourself. And if you figure out something more concrete, do let us know. Uh, trying to envision what this play might have looked like do make sure to give Gil and Mary the same voice and acting as the women in Monty Python the ones that are played by the Pythons (laughs) themselves with a (laughs) shrill voice
0: I did try and do that with Gil because she just seemed to fit the character Mm.
1: you see what I mean about how, how she and Mac are clearly well matched
0: oh my gosh completely yeah they both hate each other equally, but it's the kind of, like, banter that you expect from a married couple that actually loves each other.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: They're like, we're both thieves. We own it.
1: Yeah, and like, I assume that a lot of their sniping at each other is just because they have all these kids and it keeps them stressed out.
0: Oh, I, I would imagine so.
1: Ugh. Apparently, it means that Gil can't get any of the normal money-making stuff done because she's too busy with the kids, or she can't, like, brew enough beer to sell the extra or spit enough cloth mm-hmm. to sell it. Like, there's just...
0: She's got too much to do.
1: Every time someone knocks on the door, she's like, I was just about to do stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an old trope. And that trope still happens. of Like the housewife who, um, oh, you see it in a Christmas story, which is like a modern day Christmas mystery play. Because in the Christmas story, any time that Ralphie's mom tries to eat dinner... Somebody else is asking for another thing. Can I have another glass of milk? Can I have more mashed potatoes? And she, so she can't ever have a hot meal.
1: I have only seen that movie once and I don't remember it well at all.
0: Really? Oh, it's a classic in our family. We watch it every Christmas Eve. Yeah, but that's that's the trope because it's set in 1950s, basically. And like that's the thing is that older Ralphie is narrating and he's like, yeah, my mom hadn't had a, a hot meal in six years. And he's absolutely pointing out and you watch as somebody's always calling for something else and she's like, she just can't, she just can't. So it's been around forever.
1: I also really like that they have Gil call out the whole like, um, unappreciated quote, women's work done around the household.
0: Yes. Like, cause
1: that's still a thing now in that mm-hmm. women are expected to do all this stuff that's not really work. For the listeners, the phrase not really work was in finger quotes. Right. Like, oh, you have to take care of the kids and you have to do the dishes and like all of that stuff. And it's kind of denigrated as like... And
0: make supper. But you're
1: not really like working. You're just That's keeping... That's not real down. work. But it totally is. It's a huge amount of labor. And I like that even 500 years ago, Gil is calling that like, excuse me, what do you mean I don't do work? Who do you, who do you think makes the food and takes care of the kids? I'm running around and shouting all day. That's why my voice is hoarse.
0: Yeah, exactly. And she's like, hey, I'm trying to earn us some wages, and you're off over here thieving. You know, is is another layer you can even add to that.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of room for a feminist reading of Gil. Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. See, I'm flipping through just because it's so, so wonderful. So, Mac is also trying to put on this air at the beginning of the play where he's the servant of the king and that just disappears and never pops up again.
1: Yeah, I don't know what that was. My best guess as an interpretation is that he had some kind of scheme going where he pretends to be a servant of the king and like get something out of it, but it's immediately deflated because his disguise doesn't work and they all recognize him.
0: Precisely. And also, like, these are his pals. These are his chums, you know?
1: Even though they don't much like him. (laughs) Yeah,
0: oh, precisely. The other part I love about this play is that it sort of proves to us as a, a very modern audience, or at least we think we're modern, that humor has never changed. These people were just as sarcastic. They were poking just as much fun at each other. It's the same humor. It's the same problems the entire time. Yeah. You know, I feel like that humanizes the Middle Ages and it... It shows us that, one, we haven't progressed that much, or, to flip it around, they were more advanced than we give them credit for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what we come down to is, like, people are people, like, yeah. at all times. Oh, yeah. The trappings change, but it's still the same, like, basic humanity beneath it, even if you go back thousands of years, I'm sure you'd still find, like, people are people.
0: People are people. And I bet that this is a, this is one of the best sources that we have for understanding common culture, or vulgar culture, to put it in those terms, vulgar meaning common. Because people couldn't write, people couldn't read, so how do you, you know, how do you look at the culture that isn't preserved? Well, you, you've got archaeology, but at the same time, there's not a lot of archaeology of the common people, the common culture. And so then you have to find windows of okay, who was someone who was more educated who wrote this down and recorded it, but did so in a way that wasn't extraordinarily patronizing or ignoring any any kind of the the common folk. And uh, what was I suppose that'll come out afterwards? But we're gonna do a uh, a letter which yeah. is written by a bishop who thinks he's hot. Sh- and he totally disparages the common people. And it's a beautiful contrast to this, because this is written from a very understanding perspective. This is written by understanding the common people and the, it's the people of one culture. And then this bishop just comes into a new culture. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't care to understand it. And he just, you know, it's a, it's a, a fan, you know, he's not, he's not there to keep things going smoothly. He's going to stink up the whole room.
1: For the listeners, since we have a backlog of stuff that we recorded before we started doing the holiday episodes, that is a Mm -hmm. teaser for something that's, I think, months away.
0: Probably. But it's there. So, you know, just bookmark it and we'll come back to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the, the issue of getting in touch with the common culture is a real problem. One of the things that I'm dealing with in my dissertation is... The culture of the Anglo-Saxons, as far as we can get from literature, is very difficult to really get your head around, mm. because from the surviving literature, we get the impression that they're, like, basically Klingons. Like, it's all about war and honor. But that's because everything is written for the benefit of the warrior class, who just happened to be at the top. Yes. What were the agricultural classes doing? We don't know. What were the women doing? Well, except for the parts where they come in and serve drinks to the warriors, we don't know.
0: Yeah. And that's why we rely so heavily on sort of what we call analogs, which is more literature found in a similar culture, a similar society that we can pull from. So we see a lot more of the day to day life of the Vikings in the Icelandic sagas. And so we sort of have to look at that and take what we know about the Anglo-Saxons and sort of say, okay, what can we infer? But again, there's loads of holes and you have to, you have to make explicit the fact that this is a different culture. It is an analog. And even though there was intercultural transmission, it's not going to be the same culture, but you got to work with what we have. So the farther back you go, the less there is.
1: Speaking of the Vikings, as Saga Thing has pointed out several times, even though we have a much larger corpus of Icelandic literature than of Anglo-Saxon literature, or depending on how you want to phrase it, more Old Norse literature than Old English literature, Mm -hmm. it's still written for a male audience more than for a female audience. Oh, for sure. So the roles of the women are always kind of pushed aside. Mm -hmm. But we do see hints in the saga that there is a whole, like, Culture and a whole social mechanism that is dominated by women that we just don't, we only get glimpses at because we're reading literature that was written for men.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, it's really tricky. And it's something that I've had to grapple a lot with in my dissertation talking about magic is that the majority of the texts that we have on magic are about the prohibition of magic Mm. and very much against witchcraft. And so, well, who were the predominant group who were considered witches. Like, yeah, there were some male witches, but the majority of the people being burnt or prosecuted were women. And there's a, like, there's a huge, huge thing about that. Cause it's like, okay, is it the fact that they're women? Is it the way they practiced magic? Is it how they practice magic? Is it the fact that if you're in the church, you're a man and you're practicing okay, quote unquote, magic versus these women who are practicing older traditions of herbalism, and that wasn't disapproved of, like, how do you break that down? How do you understand that? And so there's certainly definitely a level of misogyny there. But it's, it's more complicated than that. And so trying to break that down, but also not oversimplify it as, oh, well, we just don't have this or oh, it was simply because they didn't like women is tempting and difficult to parse.
1: There was a speaker on Icelandic witchcraft who came to Purdue, I think, a year ago. Ooh! And one of the points he made is that the the traditional image of the female witch is culture-dependent, even within Europe. Absolutely. And so if you look at, like, statistics of witch trials, in, like, one country, it'll be all women. In another country, it'll be a more even mix. Mm-hmm. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly... In Iceland, it was mostly men who were prosecuted for witchcraft, and that's why it stood out as kind of like an unusual...
0: Yes, and in in some places, I want to say in what is modern Germany as well. I actually have a fantastic book over there. I'll have to cite it. Male Witches in... I think it's early modern, the early modern period, but it's about male witches. Actually, let me go get it, and that way I can just read it, and I will also cite it.
1: Real quick, since I couldn't remember the guy's name while we were recording this, I went back and looked it up later. I am referencing Dr. Maur Jonsson from the University of Iceland, and I believe the book Zoe is referencing was, in fact, the source that he was using for the data that we're talking about. <laughs>
0: So the book is entitled Male Witches in Early Modern Europe by Laura Apps and Andrew Gow, And I especially love it because it actually gives you tables counting like, okay, what's the percentage of male to female? And what's the specific context of each of these? Okay. So it was Estonia between 1520 and 1729, 60% of witchcraft prosecutions were against men.
1: It's pretty high. It is pretty high. It's also nice that it's close to 50-50.
0: True. Oh, here it is. In Iceland, between 1625 and 1685, 92% of prosecutions were against men. I heavily recommend this book. So it is Male Witches in Early Modern Europe by Laura Apps and Andrew Gao. Very good book. A bit data heavy, but it's a good read.
1: I think it really says a lot about like the differences between culture across Europe. Is like... Do you think of witches as male or female or or either? What brings your community to a witch trial?
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, like what are witches? What are witches exactly? What is the definition of, of witchcraft? is something that i think we just sort of paint with a very broad brush particularly actually particularly in modern fantasy literature and in you know even tabletop games like D D. it's like oh well you know you've got sorcerers and you've got warlocks and you've got wizards but where does the witch fit in and what does that mean and how are you taking ideas of witchcraft and sorcery and how are you understanding those differences Because I know that in my campaigns, one of the key questions that I really like my players to grapple with is why have I picked this identity and this word for how I use my magic and why is it okay for me to be this type of magic user? but not that type of magic user if it's the same magic. Is it the same magic? Does it come from the same place? Like, this is the stuff that I'm really interested in studying, not to co-opt the entire episode, but it's one of those questions that you really have to think about and people don't think about. And I think it's because we live in a very post-supernaturalist world, a lot of people don't have faith or don't consider the supernatural in their day-to-day lives because we rely on science so much now, which is fantastic. I love all the science that we have. But when you're studying these older periods, you have to understand that everyone was a supernaturalist and the other world was real. This stuff was real. And so you can't laugh off your neighbor making a joke about the devil or summoning something because no, 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 that's what they're actually doing. Yes, they'd make jokes about it, but are they are they really summoning a demon for for some more milk? Like you don't know, and so it's important to understand that mindset when you're when you're reading anything that's medieval. But I'll get off my little pulpit now.
1: <laughs> it's okay, it was interesting. But to pull back to D and D for a second, do they not have a witch class in fifth edition?
0: No, it's just wizard. So it's it's a gendered term. Oh. It makes it a gendered term. It's implied that witch is a gendered term because you have like the monsters who are hags and hags are always women. So that's just their own type of monster class. But you've got in D&D 5th edition, I don't know about Pathfinder, but in 5th edition, you've got warlocks, you've got clerics, uh, you've got rangers who use a little bit of magic. You've got sorcerers and you have wizards. And so sorcerers are defined by like having their own inborn power versus wizards who have learned it over time. And I think we see some of this in even J.K. Rowling's work because everybody's a wizard, like, but you you can still identify as a witch. Like Hermione's a witch, but she's also a wizard. And so how do we want to gender that term is really interesting because traditionally in a medieval context, a wizard or a court sorcerer or whoever was a learned man versus witchcraft which was an unlearned woman generally speaking so those are the connotations with it and so it's interesting to me that they have and they haven't undone the gendering of those terms in D fifth edition because anybody can be a wizard but it's up to you whether you want to to name yourself as a witch or not
1: see this is one of the many ways in which pathfinder is better than fifth edition because they
0: do they differentiate there's the a witch class really yeah so okay what is the difference in pathfinder between a witch and a wizard
1: well wizard in pathfinder is the same as it is in D d let me make sure i've got this correctly so i've never actually played a witch character but one of the things that i do remember about them is that witches and the the monster hags are closely aligned and that one of the class features of witches is that they can form a coven and that coven mm-hmm. can include mm-hmm. hags as their members
0: Oh, I like that. That's really fascinating.
1: In I think in both uh 3rd edition D&D and Pathfinder, which is it, it's not one of the like classes you find in the core book, but it was in both added in later.
0: That's very interesting.
1: Ah, here it is. Yeah, okay, so it's it's kind of like being a warlock because I don't know if I don't oh. think there is a warlock class in Pathfinder.
0: Oh, so witch replaces warlock.
1: Yeah, and like they've, they've got familiars. They generally are like vaguely mysterious slash sinister healers who live kind of on the outside of the society. Actually, you know what? I'll just read the thing. This is from d20pfsrd.com. Some gain power through study, some through devotion, others through blood, but the witch gains power from her communion with the unknown generally feared and misunderstood the witch draws her magic from a pact made with an otherworldly power communing with that source using her familiar as a conduit the witch gains not only a host of spells but a number of strange abilities known as hexes as a witch grows in power she might learn about the source of her magic but some remain blissfully unaware some are even afraid of that source fearful of what it might be or where its true purposes lie While many witches are recluses living on the edge of civilization, some live within society, openly or in hiding. The blend of witches' spells makes them adept at filling a number of different roles, from seer to healer, and their hexes grant them a number of abilities that are useful in a fight.
0: That's amazing. So they did gender it.
1: Ish. Again, I don't know how the 5th edition works, but uh, in Pathfinder, they seem to just pick at random a pronoun to use for the whole entry for a given class. Oh, that's
0: right. That's fair. That's right. I do remember they do that.
1: Because, you know, you don't want to say his or her every time and you don't want to make them all male. So half of them are female.
0: Half of them are female. That's fair.
1: It could have been an intentional choice to make witches female, but there's no actual indicator within the class that you can't play a male witch.
0: Right. Well, and that's I mean, that's the whole fun part about D&D is that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. That's interesting. So they blend sort of wizard and warlock.
1: I think one of the cool things about 5th edition is that it actually does say at one point, like, hey, gender's not a real thing. You can play a, a non-gender a fluid character if you want, which I think is oh, nice. I
0: think they do. Yeah, yeah, that's very
1: cool. But yeah, it looks like it's basically a warlock, but with a few like extra extra stuff, but it's a, it's a very similar concept.
0: That's fascinating to me because that draws on the ideas of witches as inherently tied with the demonic which is sort of what warlocks are yeah that's basically
1: what warlocks are I'm sure that's the that's the inspiration is that whole idea of like oh yes the witch has a black cat and that black cat is a demon disguised that grants her her powers
0: right right but that was a late that was a late addition to witchcraft mm-hmm. and and the knowledge of witch, witchcraft because before that witches appeared much much more like The wizard that you would see in 5th edition. And you could be like a high landed wizard, or you could be the sort of town healer sort of wizard, which historically, traditionally, would have generally been a witch. So if I had to differentiate between the two, a witch is anybody, regardless of gender or identity or whatever, who typically does smaller healing herbal remedies and might, in some cases, turn to the demonic but could also turn to god at the same time versus someone who was a learned wizard generally tried to stay in the realm of natural magic quote unquote and they tried to secularize it so the church wouldn't go after them they'd go after the witches but again i reference my favorite fact about witchcraft which is the number one purveyor of necromancy was the clerics so any of y'all playing clerics out there you know that is an option you are not a warlock necessarily but you know you know, you can turn to the devil.
1: I'll sign off on that distinction. <laughs> Both clerics turning to the devil, of course, but also witches being like, you're the sort of person who's kind of embedded in the community. You do healing work. You're a community figure. Whereas if you're a wizard, right. you're an academic figure. Regardless of yeah, gender, or a politician. Like, that's the division.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's sort of a low versus high brow magic. But regardless, should we go through our categories?
1: Yeah. Oh, but first...
0: But first...
1: To bring this back to the actual text.
0: <laughs> to the meaning of Christmas. We did have a male witch. We did have a male witch. Oh my goodness. And we don't know what his spell actually was. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I gotta find it. I gotta, where's my little tab? Yeah, because Mac, who stereotypically is a thief, but he's also practicing witchcraft, which checks out for ideas of witchcraft in the day.
1: Yeah, because in medieval and, and the early modern period, most witchcraft was like ways to steal supplies from your mm-hmm. neighbors or to take revenge on them. It's exactly that kind of like behavior.
0: Precisely. So he casts a sleeping spell. And apparently he didn't think the first part of it was good enough.
1: Yeah. It is not specified what he does, but there is a comment where he's like, Oh, I need to make this better. And he's definitely draws a magic circle that is in the text.
0: Yeah. Around you a circle, as round as the moon, to the last until noon. You shall lie stone still until I am finished. Over your heads, I lift my hands. So he's putting his hands out over the circle. Your eyes go out. Your sight is destroyed. But still, I must make better work. And then he improves it, but it's not specified how. And that's, that's probably legalese. Like, that's probably a prohibition that they're not specifying how, because they're like, we'll just draw a squiggly line, because we don't actually want to be accused of doing witchcraft on stage. Like, you don't want to accidentally summon a demon, especially because they're using Latin.
1: Almost all of the stage directions are either me or teams extrapolating from the lines. It's not in the text.
0: Except for the magic circle. Right.
1: Well, that's not in the stage directions. It's in his lines. He says, about you a circle. Yeah. And then he just... That's awesome.
0: So we do have a witchcraft. Witchcraft episode. We do have a male
1: witch. And of course, his spell is in verse in the original, but that's because everything's in verse in the original.
0: So was this? This is early
1: modern English then, or late Middle English?
0: Late Middle. Can you read the the spell? In yeah, let
1: me pull up the uh,
0: teams. I'm just curious to see what it says. I would love to hear it.
1: But a circula, as zorunda as a moen, to I have done that I will till that it be known that ye lich stone still. To that I had doin, and ye shall say there are till of good word is afoin on hicht. Over your head is me hand e lift, ut go your e'en for do your sicht, but yet ye must make better shift an it be richt.
0: Oh, I like it! Wonderful. Okay.
1: And in case that was impenetrable because of my bad accent, here's the actual text.
0: I think you read it very well. Thank you. Middle English is just fun to read. I really enjoy reading it. Okay, so shall we look at our segments? Yes.
1: Best dialogue.
0: What well, say Can you? You go first if you have something.
1: I like Cole's whole fight the power soliloquy at the beginning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, fight the power.
1: But for single lines, I enjoy Gil's claim that the child was attacked by an elf and she definitely saw it happen.
0: Oh my gosh, yes! I think mine has got to be one of these little turns of phrase, which I'm going to have to add to the blog because they're so much fun. I think it was one of the... I think it was the first one, actually, that I just lost it.
1: Oh, one other thing I want to note for our earlier gender thing. Apparently, in this particular time and place, shrew is not a gendered insult. Oh! Because the shepherds call each other shrews.
0: For some reason in my head, it wasn't a gendered insult until I thought about it, and then I realized... It was, largely in the 18 and 1900s.
1: Yeah, because it, well, I would say what it's equivalent to, but I'd have to bleep it out anyway. Yeah, that's fair. But like, Taming of the Shrew. Right. But apparently, like, 100 or 200 years before Shakespeare, it was non-gendered. Or at least up in the north it was.
0: I never realized it was gendered until now.
1: I've never heard a man called a shrew outside of this text.
0: That's fair. I suppose I just never thought about it in gendered terms. Maybe, maybe I—I I don't know. Hmm. All right, but no, you're right. Thinking about it, especially in the like the Taming of the Shrew is definitely yeah. Well, oh, all right.
1: Oh, was the line you were thinking about "Seldom does the devil lie dead by the road"?
0: Ooh, yes. I'm gonna go with that one. The other one that I was thinking of is the Pontius Pilate one. Oh yeah, that is good. <laughs> Into my hands, I commend Pontius Pilate. Because he just sounds so official when he does it. He's like, yes, I know the Latin. This is like me trying to translate the (laughs) the Aeneid all over (laughs) again.
1: Did you translate the Aeneid?
0: I did. It was part of my final year of high school. I hated every second of it. I much prefer... Okay, okay, okay. For the same reason that you don't like the Kennings.
1: I mean, I like the Kennings. I
0: hate. But Virgil totally disregards normal latin word order like you don't need to have word order in latin and that's like half the point because he's trying to get the lines right
1: oh i see
0: so it was so hard to translate and i remember the very first class that we did that we translated seven lines and then by the end of it we were doing like 50 lines in one go but at the very beginning we started with seven because that's all we could do
1: that does sound exhausting it was horrible
0: I much prefer Cicero. Caesar's easy. He's too easy. He gets kind of boring. I like the De Bello Gallico classic, but Cicero is probably my favorite because he's so snarky. So I highly, I highly recommend.
1: Also, you clearly went to a much cooler high school than I did. We didn't translate Latin at all.
0: I was homeschooled. Oh, <laughs>
1: <All> right. Okay. <laughs> That explains
0: that. Yeah. But I took my classes online and I, I did get to have an incredible education in terms of learning all the all the classics and things. So for those of you who have kids and are wanting to bring your kids up in a sort of classical education, it's Memoria Press or Memoria Press Online Academy, which is basically how I grew up with my education. It's a, it's a great program. And so if you do want your kids to learn Latin or Greek, or there's a great rhetoric class for Aristotle. So if you're interested in bringing your kids up in a classical education, I highly recommend their, their stuff. So just throwing that out there. Cause Hey, you know, it takes a village to raise people. It takes a village to raise a kid. And it is also your responsibility to bring your children up right with the education that you want them to have. So putting that forward, I believe in good education.
1: And they're probably not getting a classical education in American public schools. So I went to a pretty good public school as public schools go. And we got none of that.
0: Yeah, no. But I will say that 7th grade Zoe feels very vindicated that she's using Latin every single day as a medievalist because 7th grade Zoe was not happy that she still had to do Latin. <laughs> so, just throwing that out there. I couldn't get over Greek. I hated ancient Greek. But regardless, yes, yeah, so... Manus, tua, commendo, poncio, pilato.
1: <laughs> Grant me de
0: What are we going to use for D&D? Okay. Well, we've got the Thorn. What is it? The Crooked Thorn?
1: The Crooked Thorn.
0: Which is either a landmark or a fantastic tavern name. Either one.
1: Yeah. I think Teams had a note on this. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Ooh, yes.
0: And what does Teams stand for again?
1: Oh, God. um...
0: Teams Middle English Texts Series from the University of Rochester. They've got the Camelot Project. The Robin Hood Project, The Crusades Project, The Cinderella Biography, and Visualizing Chaucer. So they have some fantastic projects.
1: Here it is. They're the Teaching Association for Medieval Studies.
0: Ah, there we go.
1: I guess the T.E. and team stands for teaching. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're emphasizing that part.
1: Okay, apparently one edition of this series of mystery plays refers to, quote, a remarkable thorn tree, which was known by the name of the shepherd's thorn that stood in Mapplewell, which is a town just south of Wakefield. However, both thorn trees and places named after these are common. And in Milton's poem, uh, that's a French word that I can't pronounce, la Lallagro. <laughs>
0: Right, yep, keep going.
1: He has a couplet that reads, Every shepherd tells his tale under the hawthorn in the dale. So apparently the hawthorn trees or thorn trees were fairly common landmarks among uh, rural communities.
0: Makes sense. Okay. What else have we got? I mean, you could potentially try the whole stealing a sheep and dressing it up as a child thing.
1: I would really love to do a campaign where the characters start out as just peasants like in their everyday actual, peasant lives. Like
0: actual peasants.
1: And it's just like, all right. You need to figure out how to not starve under your lord's oppression with your first level cantrips. Go.
0: Yes. Cuz that would check out cuz you've got low level magic, you've got peasants who are just trying to do their thing. I love it. All right. Anything else? I mean, you can use the names. I think the the shortened versions of the names are fantastic. You could, if you wanted to do like a harvest tide festival, you could incorporate one of these plays or, or parts of it.
1: That's that's some good set dressing.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because then you don't have to do anything dramatic. You can just, you know, read off a couple of lines and just throw it in there. And then later you meet the actors in the tavern and they're like, oh, I had to play Mary again. <laughs> they're really
1: pissy about it. And of course, you can do the Monty Python voice if you're doing the play.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Oh, and a small thing, but I like the toss in that shepherds at this period had like specific ways to mark the sheep, the sheep's ears, so that they could identify mm. which were members of their flock. That could yep. be a plot point to to keep in your back pocket.
0: Oh, yeah, that would be a really good plot point, actually. Find the missing sheep
1: again for a, a low-level party.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, here in Ireland, because they don't they don't cut the sheep's ears anymore. They don't tag them. But they dye the sheep different colors. And it washes out when you actually, like, shear them. And so you can be driving around in Ireland and you just look up at the hills and... There's just different colored sheep all over the place, like bright blue, orange, you've got orange and green, you've got yellow, just sheep everywhere, different colors, purple. That's pretty cool. It's really cool. It's a non-harmful way to figure out which sheep are yours, because they just go, they just graze.
1: I was expecting you to say they microchip them.
0: No, that would be another thing you could do, but that's probably pretty expensive.
1: I don't know. Uh, my dog has a microchip in case she gets lost. I think it- Well, yeah,
0: but if you're doing like a couple hundred head of sheep, it'd be hilarious you could, like, GPS track where your sheep go. That would be fun. That'd be amazing. Be like, where, where do they really like to go? What's their favorite grazing spot? How does that change over the years? You know what? I bet I bet you that would tell us a lot about, like, the Irish landscape and Irish ecology. hmm Somebody needs to fund this. Yeah. Like, this would be a great study. Oh, darn it. Why am I not an ecologist? <laughs>
1: This is way more fun. Also, if you could attach like little GoPros to the sheep's as well. Like just imagine being a shepherd and going like I just I'm just gonna watch oh my, my sheep wander around on this GPS and like switch between oh my sheep gosh. View cam, sheep's oh eye vision. Oh my gosh.
0: That'd be amazing. That'll
1: be so much fun. That'd be amazing.
0: All right. Anyone who's got sheep or any sort of grazing animal that wants to try that, please let us know how it goes.
1: Yeah, that sounds like
0: fun. Yes. Okay that's all i've got for a D game really
1: yeah i don't have anything else either
0: yeah just like a just having a mystery play you get to know the actors you could do like a little mini quest about whatever issues are going on with the actors and it comes out on stage okay how many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown. Echoes in modern culture. Well, we still have the trope of the woman who can't sit down for the life of her to just get some work done. We still have that. I mean, we still have nativity plays. That's a big one.
1: We talked about that near the beginning. This is like the ancestor of your Christmas pageants.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this this would be part of like the Yuletide Festival as well.
1: And I think you said this reminded you of Shakespeare, which I think- Oh yeah, I
0: mean, he's modern enough. He's he's not the Middle Ages, therefore he's modern.
1: <laughs> Early modern, it's right there it in is. the name.
0: We'll we'll count it. All right.
1: Uh, Komi tattoos.
0: Komi tattoos. Well, we don't really have that big of a cast of characters here.
1: We've got five main characters.
0: I say we just include all five. Yeah, I and feel we like just that's leave Mary, Mary and the angel out.
1: Yeah, they don't count.
0: They don't count.
1: Mary only, only gets one line, and the angel <laughs> is. An angel.
0: Hello, I'm an angel. Jesus is here. Please go visit. Move along.
1: Yeah, I mean, theoretically, we also have Jesus and Joseph on stage, but they don't get any lines.
0: That's true. Depends on how big your cast is. Okay.
1: I guess if we're judging by the dialogue, whoever's playing baby Jesus should make some sort of noise, but that's just a baby and like you try and entertain it.
0: I would bet that they didn't even actually use a baby half the time. Probably. They just like wrapped up a gourd.
1: I'm going to assume that they just had whoever wasn't very good at acting dressed like Joseph and stand at the side and going, yeah, you are spear carrier number two.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't think Tolkien took anything from this. I don't know if he could actually do a Tolkien Tolkien tally here.
1: No, but apparently uh, there are some people in the Facebook group who are on top of that, so we may hear yes, differently.
0: That's true. That's true. Actually, do you want to take today's Tolkien tally and kind of cover what's been on the Facebook?
1: Uh, sure, but since you're the one who actually responded to that, I feel like you should present it.
0: Oh boy. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. Oh okay here's one here we go so we've got peggy hey peggy who commented and said listening to the eric the red episodes i wondered if something else you could have included as a tolkien reference is the flight of the noldor and slash return to middle earth i normally think of that as having different references but there is being outlawed leaving to avoid judicial process for killings element Then in Beleriand, there are initially not bad, but then increasingly hostile interactions with the existing population. The, I'm horrible with his names, Helcaraxa, or like the ice crossing, doesn't quite fit as Greenland, except as a place for people to die. Though no zombie elves getting into bed with other people's husbands, as far as I can remember. Which I thought was an incredibly astute point here, because you do have this entire crossing in exile from Valinor. And, because I was thinking of the ship crossing, I think, where that's sort of a a purposeful trek out and then the rest of the elves or a group of the rest of the elves follow along and they're like, okay, well, we've made this oath and we got to go after the Silmarils and we got to go get this thing. So it is a quest. I don't know if it's necessarily in the same vein, but Tolkien definitely pulled from this tradition, whether or not he pulled from this saga specifically. And so what was the other comment that I made about this? Yeah, he was definitely aware of the social mores of the Icelanders as he developed Middle-earth. And I suggested on this point, you can consider, for those of who have read the Silmarillion, you've got Maeglin and his father, Eol who is a dark elf and he's one of the only dark elves that we actually see in any of Tolkien's works and Meglin basically um his mom was kidnapped by Eol and he was the product of this and
1: did you say by Ael?
0: Ael, E-O umlaut L
1: oh okay I <laughs> thought you meant Scala Grimson
0: boom and don't you know it Eol just pops in there no um, that would, that would have been something I would not have expected that from, from Tolkien, but, um, no, so Meglin comes back and struggles with being kind of a part of the society and, and can't cope with it because he's been sort of an exile for his whole life. And then ale of course, is just not incorporated into the society at all. And so we do have this tension of killing people for their wives sort of thing that definitely, definitely came from the, Icelandic sagas. So yes. So thank you, Peggy. That was an amazing observation that I totally missed. And I think you could connect it to to Greenland and the crossings there. Especially, you know, if not Greenland, then at least the Icelandic sagas and the transition of people moving to Iceland, particularly because they were exiled.
1: And of course, Tolkien would have definitely had that in the back of his mind because he was, of course, a fan of the sagas. So yes, whether he was thinking of Greenland or not, he was definitely familiar with the motif from the settling of Iceland.
0: Yes, definitely. Okay, what else have we got? The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Well, we've got the names. You can always take the names. Mm Mm-hmm. And we've got these wonderful little turns of phrase. Yes. So the first one is wet her
1: whistle. Yep, which apparently dates back at least 500 years. Uh Future Mac here. A quick check of the OED reveals that this phrase also appears in Chaucer who wrote almost a hundred years before this play was composed. So it dates back even further.
0: We've also got Coppeld as a common name for chickens. We've got...
1: We've got Shrew.
0: We've got Shrew. We've got the devil lying dead by the roadside. You know, if you could incorporate into your hands, I commend Pontius Pilate, into your campaign somehow, you get so much props from me.
1: Yeah, tell us about it if you manage it.
0: Yes. It doesn't even have, like, it doesn't have to be Pontius, but it could be, like, some political figure who's definitely well-known. Flax on my distaff.
1: Yeah, that was a good line. I kind of like that that little idiom, because it's just like, uh, I've got business to attend to. I've got flax on my distaff. Yes. For anyone who's not familiar with medieval craft, this is like a spinning kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Spinning to do.
0: Go walk in the waning moon.
1: Yes, very good.
0: That one's fantastic. I do love that one.
1: I also like Gil's proverb, though the pot goes off into the water, eventually it comes home broken.
0: Yes, that's a great one. Is that... What's 23? I'm trying to find 23 because that's... You reap what you sow.
1: You drink what you brew.
0: You drink what you brew. That's great. It's those little things that really add the world building to your campaign or to your book whatever you're creating here is you take some idiom that is very familiar and you just flip it just enough. Just enough. Oh, we've got tossing someone in a canvas.
1: That could be incorporated into D&D in general as just uh, part of the scene in a peasant village.
0: Exactly. I was going to say like low level quest, you walk in and someone's being tossed into in a canvas.
1: Or you could have... <laughs> Oh no. (laughs) Alright, so you know how it's always fun to, at some point, drag up the PCs in front of a judge and list off their crimes? If you pull that at a low level, you can have them tossed in a canvas instead.
0: Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, instead of it being the city guard or something, it's just a local bunch of peasants. They're like, you've killed too many of our chickens. Like, just go full Link style, Legend of Zelda, and toss them in a canvas. Yes. Yes. You've got, you could refer to a child as a tiny little mop.
1: Yeah. That just tickled me when I saw it. I had to keep it in.
0: It's the fact that you're referring to the Christ child as a tiny little mop. <laughs> I know, All right? Hold on there, buddy. That's that's our eternal Lord and Savior you're talking about.
1: But he's also so cute. <laughs> <laughs>
0: His little dozy-wozies. Yes.
1: Oh, no. I just pulled up the the original text, so... Uh, the line is, Hail, little teeny mop. Aww. <laughs> That's so pure. Oh, man. Teams has a marginal note for a mop that just says, Baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Baby. Oh, boy. Oh, no.
1: I also like that both Gib and Daw call babies little day star
0: yeah I, that's really cute that's something you could start calling your kids that i think is really uplifting like i i would i would want to have been called little Daystar as a kid
1: yeah it's very sweet
0: it's very sweet okay uh... street smart. what are we what are we learning from this text we're learning that apparently magical sleeping spells do work
1: but not as well as you'd like because i don't think it lasted until noon
0: It did not last until noon. And then we're also learning that you could potentially get away with sheep theft by dressing the sheep up as a child.
1: Yeah, that almost worked.
0: Also, how big is this sheep? Because I think of sheep, like sheep are like big dog sized.
1: Yeah, I kept thinking about that. And the interpretation I ended up coming up with is... They've got it wrapped up in some way, like that it's under so many blankets that you can't tell what size it is. You're like, oh, maybe there's just a pillow under the baby.
0: Or maybe it's like a freshly sheared sheep and it's like a lamb or something. I don't know. But that's- It it is
1: specifically a fat sheep with fleece.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Maybe they cut out the bottom of the crib.
0: I I would, I guess so.
1: So it's just like, like the head is sticking up like a puppet. And everything else is covered by. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> oh no. Also, if somebody does figure out your ruse, blame it on the elves. Yes. Tried and true method.
1: Elves make excellent scapegoats.
0: They really do. I like that Da didn't realize at first yeah. it was actually a sheep. He's like, hey, your kid looks kind of like a sheep. Like, Which is kind of ballsy to say. Yeah. This woman's just given birth. And you're like, huh. He, your kid looks like a sheep. Like, you don't say that to a new mother.
1: I think Gib picked up on it immediately. He's the one who says, like, it, he looks like a sheep, and he's like, oh. He's like, yeah. Whereas uh, doll's uh, just like, oh, sheep. he has a snout. And Callie's <laughs> like, oh, no, we shouldn't bother them about their poor deformed child. <laughs>
0: character so much because he's so heartfelt about everything and gives just super sarcastic about it he's like oh my gosh i can't believe we're doing this oh it's like it's a sheep it's it's an actual sheep oh boy yeah so you could potentially get away with sheep fraud i wonder if you could use the same thing for insurance fraud like medieval insurance fraud
1: dress your house up and hide it in a crib
0: No, I was thinking, or like child support. Oh. Like you've got one too many kids, except your kids are just sheep. They're dressed up to look like new infants.
1: I'm not sure I'm following this plan of yours. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there.
0: Like you get charity from the church and you're like, oh, I'm a new mother, you know, and it's just, just a sheep. (laughs) Could do. I
1: don't know. I'm just saying. I feel like if a church is willing to give you charity for being a new mother, they'd probably be willing to give you charity just for being like poor. Poor.
0: That's also fair. Yes, but we're talking about the medieval church. It's a toss-up. It depends on your local parish.
1: Back to the beginning, one more street smart. What we learned from Cole's opening soliloquy is fight the power.
0: Fight the power. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Best moment. Mine's definitely the reveal where it's a sheep. And Daw doesn't realize it. It's the greatest
1: moment. Yeah, I think the two of them getting caught with the sheep in the crib is absolutely the best part of the play.
0: Oh, it's great. Either that or like the dramatic switch
1: to <laughs> That's right. Bethlehem. That was very sudden.
0: It's the same thing as in Tia del Saga where they're like, we're in Syria now.
1: Except in this one, they're also going back in time. It's
0: like they're just jumping. <laughs> <laughs> they saw the angel and the angel's like, this is really important and I need you to be here for this. I lost track of the original shepherds,
1: so I'm just going to grab you guys. In the opening soliloquy, Cole invokes the Virgin Mary. Like, clearly this is post. They just go
0: back in time. Also, where are they getting the cherries from?
1: Yeah, it's a miracle.
0: Okay, well, that was a miracle, to be fair. That is a miracle. But Daw only gave him a ball. Like, he couldn't find, like, some other miracle. Is this, like, a miracle ball?
1: Honestly, I feel like that's the only gift that the child can actually enjoy. Because he can't eat cherries. And I think Gib just caught a sparrow (laughs) or something.
0: (laughs) bird out of
1: nowhere. Like, at least Daw has a like, gift why? for a kid.
0: <laughs> That's true. I rescind my opinion on that one. I think Daw's gift was the most appropriate of the three. Like, one was a miracle and of course I'd be like, hey, Mary, cherries in season for you. Yeah. But then again, but then you're just like, I've got a bird. <laughs> <laughs>
1: just got a bird.
0: <laughs> Here you go.
1: <laughs> Teams had a note on this that it's supposed to be like symbolic let me see if I can find it. Oh,
0: I'm sure it's meant to be symbolic, like a dove or something.
1: Yeah, something like that. Uh, how,
0: how can you have all these gifts? Like, you've got gold, frankincense, myrrh, cherries, a bird,
1: and a ball. All right, here it is. Symbolic gifts. An unseasonable bob of cherries, reminiscent of the famous miracle staged in the in-town nativity pageant. No idea. Oh, in which a cherry tree not only produces fruit out of season, but also bends down to give the fruit to Mary. Oh, of course. A bird, symbol of the Holy Ghost and of creation.
0: Right. And right. a ball. But that's like that's that's specifically a dove, though. It's not just a bird.
1: And apparently, a ball is the royal orb representing dominion over the earth. Like how you see, like a, oh, a okay, emperor portraits, yeah. and they've got that sphere with like a little cross on top.
0: Um, excuse you, that's the apple of Eden in Assassin's Creed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: That's fair. They totally lost the plot on that one. Like they had a plot going and now they're just like, you can be a Viking. And I'm like, you guys, you guys, what happened to the plot? What happened to the whole like Templar assassin? Like, hold on. Wait a minute. I miss those days.
1: I kind of want to be a Viking though.
0: Oh no, I really, I still want to play the game. They just totally lost the plot. They just need to come out and say it.
1: I know nothing about the plot of Assassin's Creed. The extent of my knowledge is that apparently the map of Italy is very accurate.
0: Oh my goodness, yes. I was able to walk around Florence based on how much I'd played that game.
1: That's all I know about it.
0: Which says something for the detail of that game and also says a lot about how much I played that game. (laughs) Okay. The
1: court. You go first.
0: Oh no. Okay. I'm taking the woman this time. I want Gil. That's fair. I want Gil.
1: She was definitely on my list. I really appreciate her ride or die attitude.
0: Absolutely. She's like, babe, I've got this great idea. We're going to be able to keep the sheep.
1: I love her because she she goes immediately from, you stole a sheep, you're going to get hanged to, all right, I'm in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I really want to make the Witcher reference. Oh, no. There's a moment where Geralt, he's like, yeah, we're going to go hunt the dragon. And he's like, no, I'm not doing this. I don't, I don't hunt dragons. And then Yennefer walks in and he goes, I'm in. The moment that she walks in because he wants to be with her, which has now been a reference to Rick and Morty. You son of a bitch, I'm in.
1: I've seen that as a meme. Yes. And I've also seen Rick and Morty. There you go. I've not seen The Witcher.
0: I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. And it's based on the books. So nobody gets salty about the differences between the show versus the books versus the game. I enjoy all three.
1: Maybe I'll read the books.
0: Oh, the books are fantastic. And there's audiobooks. There's versions of them on YouTube, I think. Also on Audible.
1: As much as I try and avoid giving money to Amazon, I have not been able to give up my Audible subscription because I love me some audiobooks.
0: Oh, they're amazing. I love audiobooks. Okay. So I pick Gil.
1: I feel like this is too on the nose, but I'm gonna take Mac.
0: Yes.
1: And I guess the two of them can have visiting rights if they want.
0: Absolutely. Amazing. Power couple of the year.
1: I came in knowing that I was gonna take one of them.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Okay.
1: Final rating.
0: Maybe I'm just in a really good mood, but I really want to give this a 10. Like I really really genuinely enjoyed this play. Maybe it's cuz I was the one acting it out. Like between the <laughs> two of us, we like we had a ball doing this. Because I like how we get to see the common people. I like Skills character, I like how it's technically a nativity play, but it's also about thievery, it's got magic, it's got shenanigans, it shows us the common people, it shows us what they would have been into. Nope, I'm gonna give it a ten, just because I really enjoyed this, and this was a fantastic cold read.
1: Go for it. Ten. Maybe it's because it didn't, I didn't get the same surprise from it because I did the translation. That's true. That's true. You did. So I'm only going to give it an eight. Fair. I do like the, the thievery and I like the view of the common people and really it's well written.
0: It is well written.
1: I think it would be better if it weren't like, these are the shepherds from the nativity. Like if they just left that whole last part out, I think it would be massively improved.
0: That's fair, but then they couldn't make it as an excuse to do it at Yule Tide, which is what I think this is actually about.
1: Oh yeah, I'm sure that's the motivation.
0: Like the point here is not that it's a nativity play. The point here is that they're shenanigans. And they <laughs> yes. just have to they just have to justify throwing in the, the nativity at the
1: end. Like that's Yeah, it. I feel like that's that's what it is.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. So that ties it with the true judgment of Neil Frosach.
1: I feel like that's fair.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Okay.
1: Uh, welcome to the leech's corner for womb sickness womb means like belly or stomach it's cognate with womb right but it's used in a general sense in the leech book for like that whole area makes sense see the rue in oil and let the sick swallow it in oil again give him to eat a wild pigeon sodden in vinegar and in water I'm gonna assume that the pigeon is dead but I think it's more fun if it's not.
0: Also cooked. I hope it's cooked. I hope this is not like raw, wild pigeon.
1: That's true, that would- well, that's probably actually less unhealthy then than it is now.
0: Oh yes, 100%. Because there are no wild pigeons, there's just city pigeons.
1: I mean, to be fair, pigeons and doves are basically the same thing. But when we hear pigeon, we think the feral pigeons in the city, which (laughs) you should not eat.
0: Uh, The modern equivalent of plague rats. You can't change my mind.
1: For Womb's sickness again, let him chew leaves of laurel and swallow the juice, and let him lay the leaves on his navel. Again. Give melted heart's marrow in hot water to drink. That's heart, H-A-R-T.
0: Ah, so that's a plant.
1: No, that's a deer.
0: Oh, okay. Yes.
1: Yeah, the, okay, the so marrow it's the, of like a stem marrow,
0: the bone, yeah. Or the stuff in the bone. Which is still served in restaurants. Like you can still cook and eat marrow.
1: I'm not surprised. Yeah. For moderating the action of the womb, take beet, delve it up, and shake it off. Do not wash it, but seethe and boil it in a kettle so long that it be all sodden to pieces and run thick. Then add a little salt, and of honey five spoon measures, of oil one spoon measure, give the man a bowl full.
0: That seems like it would work.
1: Yeah, you know, it's probably fine.
0: That makes sense, because it's beet. So is that like a, um, I don't know, it's something soft, easy to digest.
1: Yeah, and you're specifically boiling it until it basically dissolves.
0: Yeah, that seems like it would work.
1: I'd buy that. Although I do like that you can't wash it. You, you can shake the dirt off, but you can't wash it.
0: You gotta get those vitamins.
1: Again, give to the sick to eat, separate, the top of a sodden leaf, having a head to it. Again, give him to eat some seed of the red nettle on bread. Again, give him to drink juice of mulberries.
0: Mulberries? Yeah. Those are pretty acidic. Huh.
1: Again, let him eat after his night's fasting plum fruits. Again, give him to drink elder rind, beaten. As much as may weigh a penny in a bowl full of cold water.
0: See, these sound like like varying fixes for, like, constipation.
1: Uh, it could be. I was thinking more of an upset stomach, like...
0: Well, that too. That too. But, like, plums specifically.
1: Are they? Wait. Plums and prunes. Are they the same fruit? Are they like grapes and raisins?
0: A prune is a dried plum.
1: There you go. Boom. Boom. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. So, yeah. This is legitimately eat prunes in the morning. For stomach problems.
0: Yeah, and I would argue that beets would do something similar. They might. Yes, this is to cure constipation.
1: That's really cool. They had this figured out.
0: Yeah, they figured
1: this out. I'm not sure all of these work. Like seed of the nettle on bread, maybe not ideal. Right. I don't know how good marrow is for anything other than vitamins.
0: I don't know. But hey, beets, yes. And prunes, or plums. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Vinegar is involved too. <laughs>
0: well, that would make that would make sense.
1: You're supposed to soak the pigeon in vinegar. Yeah, these these are, are foods that will uh, soothe your stomach in medieval times. Yeah. Help you. Push- and
0: I mean if if your if your diet is mostly carbs, that could be an issue. If you're not getting enough fruit, veggies, fiber.
1: Which might be the case because if they're farmers, they may be largely living on bread and beans and stuff. Right. Although beans might also help with constipation.
0: I was going to say, beans, you're going to be fine. Well, there you go. Oh, that's fascinating. I like it. When you started talking about the beets, I was like, I think this makes sense. And then the plums definitely make sense.
1: And there we go. here's something that's extra wild. The whole section of the leech book that's on stomach problems apparently is heavily borrowed from classical sources. So these are even older remedies than the medieval period. Like this is stuff that the ancient Greeks had figured out
0: amazing that checks out
1: so the next time you drink prune juice think about ancient greeks
0: there you go awesome okay before we close there is something that i wanted to share on the facebook group uh jared let us know
1: i'm gonna be bleeping these last names by the way or cutting them out or something oh that's fair
0: i mean they are putting them publicly on facebook
1: i know but i don't uh, i don't want to put their business in the streets as it were
0: That's fair. So, Jer said that he's included some of our stuff in his campaign, which is fantastic. And... His campaign is Scandinavia at approximately 750 AD. And we asked how some of the history has been incorporated into the campaign because that helps us know what works and what sort of stuff you guys find useful. So he suggested that players need to have real world capabilities except for the healer and the healer needs to show French Canadian magic. So herbalism or the side of healing power. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about witchcraft. So sort of low-level magic. And he's also applied known Scandinavian laws that they have to abide by, like no murdering, uh, but killing with a cause is okay. And some of the stories from the Poetic Edda for clues and puzzles. And if you want more clues and puzzles, I highly recommend looking at the old English riddles, which we should do soon, because those are fantastic to add into a campaign. So thanks for sharing that with us, and that helps us with ideas for what to include and what's helpful. So awesome. And we're glad that what we've put out has helped enliven your campaign.
1: Also, we always love stories from your D&D campaigns, so oh, yes. please share anyone who has them, especially if, uh, as you say, if you're using stuff from here so we know what's getting applied.
0: Yes, Definitely. All right. Yes, we love this interaction. We love to hear from you guys. It makes us excited to know that you guys are using this stuff and engaging with this stuff, because I don't know about you, but I can't stand academic elitism. And there's so much that's hidden behind academic paywalls that like, we want to get out to you guys. This is really interesting stuff. You know, Humans are humans, and we've always been this way. We've always been weird and wacky, so we should know about it.
1: Fact. There we go.
0: And with that... We wish you all a very Merry Christmas, if you so choose to celebrate. Stay safe over the holiday season with, you know, it being cold and numbers ramping up uh, in terms of COVID. So please, if you do choose to travel, do so safely and carefully. Think about your fellow man.
1: Preferably in a car instead of a plane, if possible.
0: Yes. Yes. Do what you can to keep yourself safe and keep others around you safe. You know, wear your masks, do the right thing. You know, long-term consequences include zombie plagues, potentially. So we'd like to avoid those. But yeah, so if you so choose to, you know, have a very happy Christmas and otherwise have a wonderful holiday season. We hope you get all the rest that you need in these crazy times.
1: Also, if you're looking for a Christmas gift for your geeky friends... Something has been showing up on my Facebook feed that I need to tell people about.
0: Go on. Apparently...
1: All right, you know how the, the D100s you usually get are those like plasticky golf bally things with sand in the middle? Yes. A company called Misty Mountain Gaming has made a solid zinc D100.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: It's, it's like two inches across and weighs like a pound. A chonker. So it is equally useful for determining percentage chances and for putting in a sock and hitting a fascist with, or for determining the percentage chance of you hitting a fascist with it. There you go. I just wanted to let people know that existed because I love it and I'm probably going to buy one.
0: That is a great Christmas gift idea. Absolutely. They're not sponsoring
1: us, but if they want to, we're open to it.
0: Woo-woo. Absolutely. See, this just reminds me of the saga where the guys are looking for a I think he's been outlawed and they go to his wife's house and they're like, Hey, is your husband here? We'll pay you if you tell us where he is. And she says, Sure, I'll tell you. Can I do anything I want with the money? And they're like, Yeah, anything. And she says, Okay, great. She takes the sack of money, says, Yeah, he's not here, and then swings and breaks the guy's nose.
1: Yeah, with the sack of money. Like use it as a money. blackjack.
0: Yes. So this is something you can do
1: with this D one hundred. That's Geesley Saga, by the way. If you all if y'all want to read that for yourself, like our character in the she- second Shepherd's play, Geesley's wife is ride or die, and it's yeah. fantastic.
0: Oh, she's amazing. Yeah, another power couple.
1: I think Saga thing liked her too. She's one of the only uh, women they recruited into their thingmen. Oh wow. There's so many cool women in the sagas though. Yeah, but they're often marginalized and That's
0: true. There's also there's a lot of cool men as well. So, we'll give them that. All right. But I think I think we're set.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's got to be the whole thing. <laughs>
0: yes, merry christmas
1: everyone. Or solstice or whatever you do. Or
0: whatever you like. holiday you so choose to celebrate. All right. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the maniculum podcast to join in on discussions about all things medieval and feel free to reach out we're on twitter at maniculum and on instagram at maniculum podcast we'd love to hear from you and special thanks to sandra boyle who created the music for our show you can check out her project sugar glass on spotify
1: all right since you've Done two songs and I've done one. I'll take this last one and confuse my roommate who I can hear moving around now.
0: Oh boy, go for it.
1: I see a little silhouette of a man has gotta move when <laughs> sure do the fandango.